Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you're here from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance in the workshop, please press star than zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Emerging Treatments for Metastatic Melanoma. And today's program is really such a needed program right now. And I think I just want to, first of all, acknowledge that um, the program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them for their support. Now, this program is also a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as skin cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the topic today that we have over 200 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants today on the call from the following countries, from Brazil, Canada, Dominican Republic, Egypt, India, Russia, and the United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call, and I have to say uh, it's a credit to each of you that you're decided to spend this next hour with us um, to learn more about um, emerging treatments for metastatic melanoma. And this is part two of Life with Advanced Skin Cancer. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels. Dr. Daniels is clinical professor of medicine, Morris US, UCSD Cancer Center. And Dr. Daniels will be addressing the context of COVID and metastatic melanoma, overview of metastatic melanoma, including diagnosis and staging, current standard of care, and new and emerging treatment approaches. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thank you uh, very much, Carolyn. And uh, cancer Care for putting this on, and of course, um, the callers that are coming in today. And after me are speakers that are going to go into some details about um, care for skin, um, current immune therapies, and a little more detail, as well as clinical trial updates. And so I'm going to take my uh, few minutes to just give a give us that in, uh, introduction to melanoma overall, as, as Carolyn mentioned, diagnosis staging some current standard treatments, and um, just a hint of uh, what's to come. So melanoma, um, I, I think uh, I do need to clarify that I'm talking, I'm going to talk about skin melanoma. So the most prevalent melanoma is skin melanoma, but it can also happen in the, in the GI tract as well as the eyes. So that would be mucosal melanoma or ocular melanoma. These are... Um, melanomas as well. Um, however, their path to cancer is a little different and our treatments of them are a little different. So, um, But today I think uh, I'm just going to focus down on skin, which is um, a, a big medical problem that seems to be getting worse every year as far as the uh, epidemiology. We see the incidence going up fastest in uh, young women, um, although it's uh, elderly men that um, have the highest rates of uh, melanoma. But almost every year we get uh, the data showing us that the incidence is continuing to go up um, and now has become, I think, uh, the fifth or sixth, um, second most common malignancy that we're dealing with. And we'll hear in a little bit some of the risk factors that we can modify. Some of the ones we can't modify are you know, who we are, um, our genetic background. So certainly there's a subset of melanomas that happen because of this uh, genetic background. But um, as, as we always say, we can't uh, pick our parents or our relatives, um, and uh, that's what we're stuck with. What we've learned over the years um, has been um, an understanding of both the internals um, of melanoma and the externals. So the gene changes, the mutations, the specific mutations that are driving the growth of these tumors, and that's led to some therapies, as well as what's going on outside the cell and how the body's reacting to it, 
and that's given us some insight into the immune therapies that have uh, changed outcomes for, for a substantial number of patients. As far as diagnosis, um, it goes hand-in-hand hand with staging, because when we see a spot and we see a spot change, we see a dermatologist or, or a, a provider that can provide us with either some assurance or the diagnosis. And the diagnosis for melanoma is with a biopsy. Um, that biopsy is the one that can get done quickly um, and can give us the answer whether it's melanoma or not. Um, with that biopsy information, um, we have some decision points about our surgical management of disease uh, based on the characteristics of the of the melanoma. But some patients, um, and a lot of patients, will get um, what we call a, a simple excision or a wide excision because it's a thin or non-invasive melanoma. But um, a fraction of the patients will have risk factors associated with their melanoma that will bring in a discussion about looking at lymph nodes. So we take the excision data, we take the assessment of lymph nodes, and we take the overall uh, patient assessment, and we think about patients in terms of these groups that you've heard about, the stagings of, of one, two, three, and four. And again, thankfully, most patients are diagnosed early at stage one because of that vigilance and um, of monitoring the skin, looking for any ugly duckling lesion that, that uh, sticks out from the rest and getting that assessment. If, if the uh, tumor is, though, more advanced, or if it is um, advanced enough where it's metastatic disease, that's when we get into some of these other therapies. So adjuvant treatment in melanoma means that uh, you've had your primary excision done, and now we're giving you um, uh, medications to help prevent it from coming back. And there are several adjuvant therapies available that can be discussed with patients that um, will go in. Um, your, your oncologist or your care team needs to talk about um, what, what benefit they feel it's going to give to you and what adverse events are expected from it. Because even, even in high-risk melanomas, we need to have a full discussion that includes close monitoring and, and not just um, therapies. Um, moving on to a disease that uh, we can't address surgically that may be spread, uh, spread further, and that's where, in the beginning, I mentioned our understandings improved and given us therapies that are either oral pills, and these inhibit uh, activating pathways or gene, gene changes in the, in the cell, that are highly effective at shrinking tumors down with a high response rate and rapid onset. Um, they, too, have side effects, um, as well as immune therapies, uh, which may not have as high of response rates or rapid a, a, a duration, or uh, I'm sorry, rapid onset, but they do have long durations of responses in a fraction of patient. So each of these therapies uh, need to be discussed as if they're appropriate or not with the patient. Some of that depends on the background of the patient, their health, what state, uh, clinical state they're in, as well as the background of the tumor. Do they have a particular mutation or not? How is this different today than it was two months ago? And this varies across the country, and I know today's phone call, um, each of us are going to touch a little bit on how COVID is impacting things, and it definitely has um, um, impacted our access to dermatology. So um, in some areas, dermatology offices still remain closed, so we don't have access to that, and that's a barrier. Um, some of these discussions of coming into the hospital, having a wide excision and sentinel lymph node, well, that's a bigger risk than having a wide excision. And so we have discussions um, about the risks of some of these surgical procedures, as well as the particular therapies we're offering, because some of the therapies, some of the side effects include lung inflammation. And so in, in some areas, providers are changing their standard recommendations from immune therapies, which may have uh, lung inflammation as part of their, um, their side effect profile, or they're changing the frequency of how they're giving the drugs to minimize uh, patient exposure, and we'll be hearing about that too. Um, and then lastly, a, 
a part that's very important in the care of an advanced melanoma patient is access to clinical trials. And clinical trials uh, access uh, varies across the country with some institutions um, um, currently um, trying to rethink how they're how they're giving out therapeutic studies, while others have continued to open, keep open their therapeutic studies. So it definitely has put a, a big shadow over the whole care of the melanoma patient as well as other cancer patients. I just uh, came from a patient uh, this morning who's on a clinical trial, and she's like, so what happens if my daughter comes home who's a surgical nurse and she's been exposed to COVID? Great question. You know, um, so how are we screening this? How are we handling um, the um, therapeutic um, program that we um, are, are obligated to stick to under a, a study guidance? And each sponsor and each institution, again, has different um, management strategies for for these risks. Um, so um, these are big issues um, that um, I would say that we're all getting a little less sleep these days trying to... Um, get um, appropriate care to appropriate groups of patients. So that's my 10 minutes, and uh, I think we have some great talks coming up in the next 20. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. So that was really superb. And actually, and also I think um, knowing that you and um, all the, the presenters on today's program are giving us so much thought and care um, in this context today, I think it really um, provides such um, hope and importance for the participants on the call today to know the dedication that you all have. So thank you. Thanks. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Richard Kavahal. And Dr. Kavahal is um, with the Department of Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology. He's Director of Experimental Therapeutics. Director of the Melanoma Service, New York Presbyterian, Columbia University Medical Center, Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Carvajal will be addressing targeted therapy and the role of precision medicine, the important role of immunotherapy, clinical trial updates, how research increases your treatment options, and symptoms, side effect, and pain management. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Carvajal. Carolyn, thank you so much, and thank you to uh, Cancer Care for giving us this opportunity. I think this is, you know, I think um, having the chance to speak directly to patients and caregivers is so critical, um, and, uh, you know, just sharing kind of the way we're thinking, uh, making sure we're delivering the care the way um, that, um, you know, benefits the patients um, the most is, is really, really important. Um, so, so maybe I'll just start off with um, just, just my thoughts regarding COVID. Um, you know, all, all of the physicians, you know, the goal is still the same, provide the, the best care, uh, increase the likelihood of cure, um, give care that's safe, uh, well-tolerated, that those goals remain the same. And what's changed, I think, um, with COVID is that there's just another variable uh, that makes things a little bit more complicated. Um, and as we think about um, which patients um, uh, have to come in for surgery, or how frequently should we be scanning, um, or um, how often should folks be coming to our infusion centers for treatment. Um, all of that now has to be put in the context of the potential added risk um, of COVID infections. Um, and, and all of us on the phone, all of the medical centers um, are, are um, you know, very hard at work trying to put in place measures to minimize the added risks of COVID. Um, and that includes, um, um, wiping down surfaces, um, um, making sure that um, the, the nurses and doctors are not infected, making sure that the patients um, don't have fevers, um, you know, even testing um, all patients before they get um, therapy. And so these are, these, are, these are things that are being put in place to make sure that we can, um, you know, deliver the best cancer care uh, to everybody as safely as possible. Um, and as Dr. Daniel said, um, I think the way these are um, being put in place um, are, are really very regional in nature. Um, that is, you know, where uh, Dr. Lagator and I uh, are in New York City, which is, you know, remains a, um, you know, an epicenter of this disease. The way we think think about things in our centers may be very different uh, than other centers where the incidence of, of COVID may be a little bit less. 
nevertheless, I, I guess um, maybe I'll just kind of move on from the, the COVID um, thoughts and, and happy to take any questions, obviously, later. Um, but, you know, we have come a long way um, in, um, in how we can treat um, our patients with, with melanoma. When, when I started treating um, folks with melanoma, which was not that long ago, you know, maybe 2004, 2005, when we saw folks with advanced disease, the goal was always um, what we call palliative. That is, you know, let's let's control the disease for as long as possible. Um, but the idea of cure um, back then um, was, um, you know, we did it sometimes, but it was really anecdotal. Whereas now when we see patients with advanced disease, uh, patients with metastasis, um, you know, to the lungs, bone, liver, brain, um, you know, the goal is actually cure. Um, I, I say that, you know, very carefully. <laughs> um, but the fact is that there is a very that that is is something that we are able to achieve not in everybody but in a significant proportion of patients, um, and and the way we've been able to do that um, is through um, a massive increase in our understanding both of um, how melanoma grows um, and how um, our bodies our immune system uh, reacts to cancer um, like melanoma, um, and so um, they're kind of two major aspects that have led to this um, um, advance. And one would be um, um, our ability to really um, uh, provide um, precision medicine uh, to our patients with, with cancer. And I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and then the, the other aspect was our ability to use immune-modifying drugs to help fight cancers like melanoma. Um, so um, precision medicine. You know, you, you see it on TV all the time. You know, what is that? Well, you know, really simply, it's just our ability to, um, uh, you know, give the right drug at the right dose at the right time to the right patient, right? Um, and um, and kind of the underlying concept behind that is um, every patient, um, every melanoma um, is, is biologically different. Um, and we have to understand how each individual cancer is growing and um, how each individual patient's body, um, you know, is dealing with that cancer um, and then um, develop really a, a personalized plan to how to fight the cancer. Our ability to do that, the concept's not new, um, but our ability to do that has increased over time uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, we have um, many, many, many more drugs at our disposal that can change the biology of the cancer um, as well as the way the body reacts to it. And so, you know, currently there are over a thousand drugs um, in development for the treatment of cancer in the U.S. Think of that. That's a lot of drugs. Um, and uh, many of them do very different things. The, the second tool that, that we have um, to really allow us to deliver precision medicine better um, is um, better access to um, 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 tests that will, you know, let us understand how, how the cancer is growing. Um, and these are tests that can sequence the DNA of the cancer or um, look at the proteins in the cancer um, and, and things like that. Um, in practice, um, you know, how are we applying that? Um, many of you um, may have had... Uh, uh, gene sequencing done on your tumors, either at, at the institutions where you're being treated um, or using commercial assays um, by companies that you may have heard of, um, companies like Foundation Medicine or Gardent or Caris. There, there are many commercial labs that do this now. Um, and basically, um, what those, those labs do is um, they take a sample of, of your melanoma, you know, that's been cut out before, um, from paraffin slide, and they'll just sequence the DNA. Um, um, and, and we can look for particular defects, right, um, in, in kind of that coding material of, of the cancer. Um, and in some cases, if there is kind of a, a defect or a mutation in gene X, um, sometimes there's a drug Y that can work very, very well. Um, and in melanoma, um, one of those gene-drug pairs um, is the presence of uh, mutations in something called BRAF, which we see in about 45% of skin melanoma um, cases. Um, and um, melanomas with those BRAF mutations um, respond very well to inhibitors of that BRAF pathway. And so some of you might be on uh, um, drugs that block BRAF and MEK, 
um, and and they work very very well. And that's really the idea behind precision oncology. Clearly, where we are now is not where we're going to be in five years or ten years. Um, um, I think you know the future of precision oncology is not going to be solely based upon looking at the DNA or the genomics of the cancer, but we're probably going to be looking at the RNA and the proteins and the metabolism um, of individual cancers to determine what the best therapy is. Um, so how does that apply to immunotherapy? Um, many of you um, have been on therapies, um, I, I would think, um, called Opdivo or Pembrolizumab, which are these anti-PD-1 antibodies. Some of you may be on combinations of drugs, like the combination of Opdivo um, and ipilimumab. Um, and these, these are drugs that augment the immune response um, to the cancer. It bypasses the defense mechanisms that cancers or melanomas have developed to evade the immune system. Uh, and if you can um, kind of um, take those checkpoints away, the immune system can, uh, again, reawaken recognize the melanoma and, and fight it off. And, and those drugs have been extremely, extremely um, effective. Um, the, the concept of precision medicine, although we oftentimes think about it in terms of these targeted therapies like these BRAF pills and so forth, they can also apply to immunotherapies. Um, um, uh, you know, these, these checkpoint inhibitors, um, while they work in a lot of people, they don't work in everyone. Um, and, and, you know, the question for us is why, um, why doesn't it? Um, and so, um, like we can look at the DNA of individual patient melanomas to say, oh, you know, this cancer is driven by gene X, we can also look into the tumor um, and say, well, you know, these immunotherapies aren't working um, in some cases because there are no immune cells there. And so we need some sort of therapy to drive the immune cells into the tumor so that they can, again, fight off the cancer. And so, um, in a way, that kind of um, leads us, and I know I think I only have a couple of minutes left, so I apologize for <laughs> going on, but I, I guess that kind of leads, leads us up to um, the uh, importance of clinical trials. Um, you know, our standard of care therapies for melanoma are good, okay, um, but they don't cure everyone. And until we're curing 100% of people with this disease, um, we have to keep on. We keep, have to keep on finding, working to find better therapies. Um, and many of these clinical trials are are working to do just that. Let's better understand um, how uh, individual melanomas are growing, why therapies are not working, or why some are, um, and make them better. Um, and so, for everyone um, with a diagnosis of melanoma, I would I would urge you to at least consider um, asking your physicians uh, what trials are available. Um, you know, what should I be thinking about? You may not want to do it, that's okay, but, but it's something that you should kind of explore um, because um, without, um, without these clinical research programs, uh, we're not going to be able to continue making the advances that we've made in the past um, several decades. Um, the last topic I have is um, um, symptom and side effect and pain management, you know, and, and how do we think about this? Um, Dr. Lacatour is, is a world expert on uh, the management of side effects um, and uh, permitting uh, patients to continue receiving, um, you know, life-saving therapies despite uh, the development of some side effects. And I might might defer some of some some of these thoughts to him, um, but I think it's important to remember that the way we manage patients um, has to be as a team approach. Um, it's not just um, the medical oncologist. Um, it's not just the surgical oncologist. It's not just the dermatologic oncologist. We have to work as a team. Um, as side effects develop on some of these immunotherapies, which may include inflammation of the lungs, inflammation of the liver, the colon, um, it's always important to remember to pull in the necessary experts, um, our gastroenterology colleagues, our pulmonology colleagues, to make sure we're managing the side effects as a team as best as possible. Um, so that um, outcomes and uh, so, so that therapy can, can can continue if indicated and outcomes are are optimized. Carolyn, so maybe I'll leave it at that. Uh, I think I'm at my ten minutes. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Carvalho. You did a wonderful wonderful presentation, I have to say, and uh, actually um, 
really outstanding. And also, uh, you know, for everyone to hear the, again, the dedication that goes into the research and to the understanding of the best treatment for each patient is so vitally important in these calls. So thank you so much for bringing that as well and for your highlighting that. And our next speaker is Dr. Mario Lacatour. And Dr. Lacatour is world-renowned, and he's director, Oncodermatology Program, member, attending physician, Dermatology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and he's also a professor of dermatology while at Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Lacatour will be addressing follow-up care and quality of life concerns, recommendations for caring for your skin during your treatment, sun safety guidelines, and how to prepare for telehealth appointments with your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lacatour. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner, for the introduction and for allowing us the possibility of speaking to so many uh, wonderful people uh, listening to us today. Uh, and I would like to also follow up on uh, the, my colleagues' uh, prior comments on how uh, the treatment of melanoma has remarkably improved in the past 10 to 20 years. And I uh, really admire the uh, advances that have been uh, provided in the treatment of melanoma by medical oncologists and their teams, as Dr. Daniels and Dr. Carbajal. And these remarkable advances in the treatment of melanoma can be made even better by mitigating or managing any adverse or untoward side effect that is experienced during therapy. As Dr. Carvajal very clearly defined, there are two major types of therapies that are used in advanced or uh, in, in melanoma. These are the targeted therapies and the immunotherapies. The targeted therapies are usually administered as tablets or pills taken every day. The immunotherapies are usually administered through the vein uh, every uh, three to six weeks or every two weeks. Now, there are differences between the side effects that can occur with either of these therapies. With the targeted therapies, people can experience a rash that affects their face and upper body that looks like acne, but it is not acne. They can also develop very dry skin over the body and very thick and sometimes painful calluses on their palms and soles. They can also experience some irritation around their nails. The hair may change a little bit in terms of its appearance, and some people may experience some discomfort in their gastrointestinal system in the form of nausea, constipation, or diarrhea. Joint pains can also be experienced. Interestingly, oncologists have found that by combining two of these targeted drugs, not only do they work better, but also the incidence of some of these side effects affecting the skin may be lessened. So what can you do about these side effects? So always remember that as the saying goes, if you see something, say something. But in this case, we will also add, if you feel something, say something. And there have been studies showing that if uh, patients that are receiving therapies for cancer report their symptoms to their oncologist uh, in a timely fashion, in other words, even before their next appointment. They call or they communicate with their oncologist as they are developing or experiencing side effects. They have better results from their treatment, and they can uh, receive their therapy for a longer time, and also there is a, uh, a, the need to go uh, for unplanned visits or to the emergency room for any side effects is much lower. In addition to that, the quality of life is improved if you report any symptoms to your oncologist as soon as you experience them. Other side effects with some of these targeted therapies that are taken as pills or tablets are a sensitivity to the sun. I'm sure that many of you are already aware and experienced as to how to protect yourselves from the sun especially because with a history of melanoma, it's important to minimize this risk factor, which could have contributed to the development of the disease in the first place. So using sun protective clothing, protecting yourselves between the times of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. is important. 
and using a broad-spectrum sunscreen containing zinc or titanium that is applied every two hours or every hour if swimming or sweating when going outside. It is also important to moisturize your skin, especially your palms and soles, with uh, moisturizers that will soften the skin so you don't form these thick calluses that can sometimes be painful. And if you develop the rash that looks like acne, it's important to discuss with your oncologist because the best treatments for this are usually those that will require a prescription in the form of either uh, antibiotics that are taken as tablets or a, a, a topical creams or topical anti-inflammatory medications. Now, moving on to the other class of drugs that have shown remarkable uh, benefits in melanoma are the immunotherapies. So it is amazing what these drugs do. So your oncologist basically asks your immune system within your body to go out and attack. And thankfully, most of the time, your immune system will attack those cells that the oncologist wants to fight and that your own body wants to fight. However, in some cases, probably 30 to 50% of cases, your immune system will also attack normal or healthy tissues within your body. These are called immune-related adverse events. And these immune-related adverse events occur as a result of the immunotherapies and can affect any organ in your body, your skin, your bones, your intestines, any part of your body. Thankfully, the majority of these side effects are not severe and do not warrant any type of admission to a hospital or anything like that. But they may require some medications prescribed by your oncologist. Again, the earlier the better. So what side effects are the most common? Well, those that affect the skin and the intestines in the form of a very itchy rash or in the form of diarrhea and in some cases abdominal pain. So your oncologist has a many tools in their armamentarium to treat both of these side effects with anti-inflammatory medications. So what your oncologist will try to do if you experience any of these side effects is to kind of fine-tune your immune system where they don't want to put it out too much, but they don't want to let it become too activated and keep it at a level where it attacks those cells that uh, they but you are not experiencing side effects. And this can be achieved with the application of certain uh, creams that have these anti-inflammatory corticosteroids or with the, uh, uh, with the other administration of drugs that can be taken as also as tablets as corticosteroids or other drugs that modulate your immune system that are administered through a vein. These drugs are usually very safe and they will not have any negative consequences, but of course, it is uh, always better to talk to your oncologist before you receive any of these medications. And if your uh, side effects are controlled, you may not even need to receive additional medications. Importantly, most of the side effects that you will experience will occur within the first three months of therapy. And this is the same uh, for both of these drugs, the targeted therapies and the immunotherapy. Why is that important? As I always like to talk to, to patients, uh, and, and, and inform them that uh, the first three months tend to be the most difficult ones as your body gets adjusted to these treatments. Once you get through that first, uh, that first uh, step or those first three months, usually things will get better and your body will become more accustomed to things. That said, side effects can occur at any point during your treatment, but we'll take it one step at a time, the first three months. And the other important part about this is that some of these side effects, especially with the immunotherapies, can be associated with a greater efficacy of the drugs. What does that mean? That people who develop side effects, it appears that they also achieve greater benefits in terms of the drugs working better. So at least this is a silver lining in terms of these side effects and helps many people cope with the appearance of uh, some of these side effects. So to conclude, I would just like to uh, reiterate that it is really remarkable all the things that uh, have been done for melanoma and the improvement of the care for thousands uh, of people with the disease all over the world. And side effects are common. The majority of the time they can be managed, but it is important to report any of these side effects early on so that your oncologist and their team 
can provide effective interventions. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Lacouture. That was really outstanding and really just a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, information for everybody. Um, also, and also that that concept: if you see something, say something; if you feel something, say something. Bring it to your healthcare team, and that's a very important thing for everyone to remember. These are very important. Uh, these are very important concepts, but these are also very important words to remember. So thank you very much. I know there'll be questions for all of our speakers during the Q&A, which is about to start. However, I'm, I, I'm Carolyn Mester, and I'm going to say a few words about cancer care before we, um, before we go into the Q&A. So start getting your questions ready. Um, I actually am an oncology social worker, and I'm director of education and training at Cancer Care. And I'd like to go over with you the free services that you can access from Cancer Care. We've added some additional services that we did not have before that I want you to know about really important. So all of our services are free, and they're provided by trained oncology social workers. So all of them have a master's level in social work. Some have more than that. And to some extent, um, what, do, what do those services look like? Well, you can either call us on our Hope Line, or you can actually um, email us, or you can actually go to our website, and you can just post your question there. The, we offer, first of all, I want to start with practical and financial assistance. Practical assistance is available to anyone on this call. The financial assistance is, is for people in the United States, and the financial assistance includes financial assistance with um, some of the costs associated with your care. We also have a co-payment assistance program. And, but we also do have a program for people affected by COVID-19, which does is a more generous program in the sense that it offers help with um, things that we haven't traditionally helped with, like food and and rent and all kinds of things like that. And again, that is for people in the U.S. Um, however, there are international counterparts of that and other counterparts throughout the United States as well. So there are lots of um, help by the nonprofit world to offer you those kind of practical and financial assistance um, because we know that everyone right now is having a very difficult time. This is with 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 just the costs of everything. Um, we also do offer free counseling services, and those are available both on the telephone and online. And we do uh, also offer telephone and online support groups. And the telephone and online support groups um, can be very helpful at this time for some of you um, actually in coping with social distancing. I think this is a time um, when people are feeling more alone, more isolated than ever before when they're practicing social distancing. It means that they cannot have friends over to their home. They, you can talk to people on the phone and you can actually keep in touch with, there are all different methods of keeping in touch with people that you know. Zoom, you can do a lot of things that actually allow you, and you also with your physicians, can. there are telehealth visits that you can have. But nevertheless, indeed, um, they are for some people, these uh, these telephone online support groups are very helpful. And the groups are for people with all different types of cancers, so in, including melanoma, and also for all different age groups. So for people who are young adults, um, for people who are middle-aged, older adults, um, for caregivers, for uh, partners of people living with uh, cancer. So there's probably a group for any one of you on this call if you're interested in that program. And those programs you can access just by going to our website or by calling our 800 number. So to contact Cancer Care, you can just simply call us at 1-800-813-4673, or you may visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And I should say at the end of today's program, you'll be getting, well, actually, probably you'll probably get the um, evaluation on Monday or Tuesday. And the evaluation, we of course want to have your feedback about the program. But the evaluation also includes all the resources that you could possibly need um, that are out there um, that it would take us a whole other program to mention live on the program today. So just to be aware of the fact that there are many resources out there for you. And in a, I've only given you a snapshot of some of the cancer care programs. So when you go to our website or when you call us, our staff will go over even more programs that we have that, um, that would be very helpful to you. So with that being said, we now have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. So I'm going to ask Norma to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And I'm going to ask Norma also to bring all of our speakers on board. Thank you. Thank you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you, those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Okay, we have uh, some questions from people on the, our on website um, who've uh, actually who've posted their questions online. And let's start with this first question. Um, and I'm going to this question is for Dr. Um, Daniels. Are patients delaying treatment due to COVID-19 fear? Yeah. Um, uh, the short answer is yes. Um, so I have patients who have routine visits who. Um, are not coming in. Now we've talked about uh, video chats, and you know we've gone from zero to sixty in our ability to do video chats. It uh, works for a lot of patients. It doesn't work for some patients. Um, it still is a technology that um, is in development, and you know broadband is not also available in all parts of the country. So it hasn't it hasn't solved all of that issue, and. The second thing, I've had patients who are on uh, adjuvant therapy. This is therapy that ha is there to lower the risk of the cancer coming back. And they've made decisions during this time to stop their adjuvant therapy. So uh, absolutely, these issues are, are coming in daily. And I'll, I'll just mention one other thing where it's affected um, really our care, and that is... Um, we minimize exposures, and so as an institution, we um, and a lot of places have chosen patients when they come in, they're no longer allowed to have, um, most patients are no longer allowed to have their uh, their support team with them, and this is huge. Um, so this is impacting uh, patients' ability to tolerate therapies, um, understand therapies. It's always great to have somebody in the room. Um, so. Um, over a, a broad issues that this is affecting uh, cancer care. Excellent. And does anyone else want to comment on this in addition to Dr. Daniels? Yeah, I, uh, Carolyn, it's, it's Rich. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, in addition to, um, um, well, I, I guess I would just <laughs> just um, say I, I completely agree with Dr. Daniels said. Um, I, I think it is important also because clinical trials are so critical to what we're doing um, and just just maybe talk about the, the risk-benefit calculation in this case because for some of these therapies, they are, are not proven to be effective. Um, yet, um, there are some cases where we have very little other options to offer. Um, and in, in those cases, it becomes very, very hard, I think, to... Um, um, to weigh the risks and benefits of trial participation, which might include IV infusions and research biopsies and additional scans, more exposure in the healthcare setting, um, you know, versus um, versus tr trying to find alternative options or just providing, you know, kind of best supportive care. Um, and and I can say for for me personally, where uh, and for many of us, where we've um, Spent so much time trying to develop these new therapies. It's been very hard to try to reconcile how to how to best care for patients who, you know, um, um, you know, may benefit from these trials. And also, um, Dr. Alcatraz, do you want to comment on? So, what if a person doesn't have the technology? Can they pick up the phone and speak to their physician? Is that something that's an option as well? That's a great question, Carolyn. And with the recent COVID nineteen crisis. Uh, the government has loosened the uh, former regulations on how we can communicate with patients and through what methods. turns out that in the past, uh, we were very limited as to how we could share information with patients and how patients should share information with us for all of the uh, constraints of confidentiality. In addition to that, we were also limited by the state where our licenses were issued. In other words, if a patient was in a different state, our ability to deliver care even uh, remotely through the telephone by uh, talking to them w could have been limited. Now, because of this crisis, both of the, uh, these factors have been, uh, have been loosened, so therefore uh, we are at greater liberty uh, to talk to patients, whether they're in our same state or a different state. We are able to communicate uh, with them uh, via telephone, 
uh, as well as many other platforms uh, and other apps that allow for video communication. So if you have uh, any uh, symptom or side effect that you would like your oncologist to, uh, to be aware of, it is now possible to have a telehealth or telemedicine visit with your oncologist with the use of uh, several of these platforms that your oncologist uh, will discuss with you as they will be familiar with uh, one or a few of these. Um, and this has enabled uh, many of us to address any of the side effects without uh, further delay by uh, allowing us to communicate with people the same day that they have uh, a side effect or they experience a symptom. So feel free uh, to uh, pick up the phone uh, call your oncologist's office, and in, in some cases, you would be able to also have a video uh, uh, call with your oncologist so that they can see uh, any of the um, signs that you may have been having in, in your body or how you have been feeling, or sometimes it just really adds an additional layer of connection to just be able to see your oncologist and for your oncologist to be able to see you. As we have uh, um, heard before from uh, Dr. Carvajal, the goals of the, your oncologist care are still the same, is to uh, provide the best care possible for you. And every uh, tool that we have our, at our disposal to allow for that uh, is most welcome. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And um, a question for, um, for Dr. Kavahal. Um, how long do you treat metastatic melanoma with PD-1 inhibitors if doing well? Yes, that's, that's an outstanding question. Um, and I think... Uh, I. You know, I mean, the, the um, short answer is we're not entirely sure. Um, the way the duration of therapy has kind of evolved, it was based off of what we did in clinical trials, where um, initially the first PD-1 trials um, were um, administered so that the drug was given for as long as we thought patients were benefiting. Um, and then over time, it became clear that maybe this indefinite duration of therapy was not necessary and perhaps we could shorten it. Um, and so over time, uh, the duration of therapy has decreased from indefinite to two years to one year. Um, um, you know, clinically, um, I think what many of us do um, will um, treat to what we call maximum response. And um, there are sometimes, in some cases, where we'll treat patients with an anti-PD-1 antibody and have what we call a complete response to therapy, that is, um, you don't see any more cancer in the body. And in those cases, um, if, we, uh, if we choose to stop therapy at that point, the likelihood of um, it coming back is quite low. Um, and so one, one uh, factor we can do to determine how long do we have to treat for is to see, can we achieve that complete response? And if we do, um, perhaps it's reasonable to stop. Um, th there are other cases where um, we treat with the anti-PD-1 antibody, and um, the best we, we do is, is stabilize the disease. Um, and, um, and after months and months of therapy, there's really no change in that lesion. Um, in those cases, sometimes what we do is um, uh, we uh, perform what we call a PET scan, which looks at a metabolic activity of the tumor. Um, sometimes we'll go ahead and biopsy the lesion to see if there's any viable tumor there. Um, and in cases where there's no evidence of metabolic activity on the PET scan, um, it seems that if we stop therapy, in most cases, um, patients do quite well uh, without evidence of recurrent growth or progression um, over time. Um, and uh, certainly in cases where we do do biopsies um, and all we see is residual scar tissue, that gives us some confidence that we will be able to successfully stop therapy. Um, so. You know, there's not a clear-cut answer there, uh, and I think many of us kind of do um, slightly different things. Um, but, again, I would consider um, utilizing those PET scans, consider doing biopsies, uh, and in cases where we do get a complete response, I think many of us are, are comfortable stopping therapy. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks. Um, does anyone want to add to that or anyone? Okay. Okay. And for Dr. Daniels, a question. Is it true that melanoma patients should not take vitamin C supplements during their treatment? Um, yeah, that's a, a good and common question, too. Um, a lot of patients come in on um, additional therapies that um, maybe they've um, always taken 
or um, they've heard information that um, it could help. Um, and so vitamin C I would put on a list of about um, 100 uh, things that uh, patients may come in and, and discuss. Now vitamin C specifically, um, I, what I advise patients is um, during this time, I would try to stick to being uh, normal. And normal is um, patients eating a balanced diet and getting their um, nourishment that way. There certainly are times when nutrition is compromised and we need to supplement. Um, you know, for example, pregnancy is a metabolic stress and we need to supplement with vitamins. Or um, you know, if our, if our oral intake is limited and we're losing weight, we may want to supplement. Um, but I'm not a, a personally a, a big fan of taking lots of vitamins, and sometimes patients come in on on what we call pharmacologic dosing of vitamins, where it's it's beyond the recommended daily allowance, and we're getting into a range uh, where um, they do have biochemical consequences for the person. Uh, sometimes it's as quote-unquote simple as changing the pH of urine, but they can also lead to kidney stones, uh, other issues. Um, and, and so when we're taking these um, doses, um, we don't quite know how they're interacting with therapies. I'll say that vitamin C is um, at high doses is felt to be an antioxidant. Um, we are trying to use your body's um, oxidative system to kill cancer. And so there's some theoretical interaction there. There are no studies to show um, directly that uh, there's uh, pros and cons for the inner interactions here. But that's also what I discuss with patients, that there are no um, clear studies to guide us. And in the absence of um, data, I'm, I'm conservative in my recommendations and uh, would stay away from it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, um... And a question for Dr. Lacroix: um, Do you recommend clothing that protects the skin against UV rays? Um. Yes. Uh, so uh, that that is an excellent question. So I want to thank people uh, for always uh, teaching us through their questions. And uh, there are uh, brands that make clothing that has an ingredient within it that will prevent the penetration of ultraviolet radiation coming from the sun. This will be particularly important in people that are receiving some of the drugs that may sensitize you more to the sun, such as uh, bemurafenib or zelbaraf. Uh, these uh, these uh, pieces of clothing, uh, there are hats, there are long sleeve shirts, there are pants. They are very light, so it's okay to wear them on a warm, sunny day. They can also get wet. So sometimes, if you go swimming, uh, you can. There are also uh, types of clothing that uh, can, will protect you against the sun, and you can still go swimming, and they will not be uncomfortable. It's important to remember that there is also a type of detergent that you can add to your clothes that will make it uh, resistant to ultraviolet radiation. So the clothing that you already have, you add this detergent to the wash, and it will also uh, make it um, resistant to the uh, radiation from the sun for about eight additional uh, washes. Uh, keep in mind that it's important to use long sleeve shirts and long pants if, if it's very sunny outside. And also, it's very important to remember that ultraviolet radiation A, which is one of the types of radiation that comes from the sun, will penetrate through window glass. And Ultraviolet radiation A is the one that is responsible for burning of your of your skin and also uh, the one that is known to be associated with many types of skin cancers, including melanoma. Why is this important? Because ultraviolet radiation A, since it goes through window glass, means that if you're in your car or if you're in your home and you have a large window in your home where the sun can come in, that and if it's uh, reaching you directly, that means that you are still being exposed to the damaging effects of the sun. So it's important to be aware of these uh, uh, situations so that one could prevent them, especially with those medications that make you more sensitive to the sun. 
That's excellent. And there's another question that is about, is normal clothing protective enough from the sun? Is it enough sitting in the office um, for most of the time? But I think you've probably answered that. Do you want to comment on that as well? Yes, this is a, a, a great question, whether uh, normal clothing uh, would protect you against the sun. Uh, and it varies by the type of clothing, of course. The heavier uh, the fabric, uh, the more it will protect. The darker the fabric, the more it will protect. If a T-shirt is wet, it will protect you less than if it's dry. And, uh, of course, again, the color and the weight of the fabric will give you additional protection. The other day, a patient brought up a very uh, interesting question, uh, which is that in this current COVID situation, since we are all wearing face masks now when we are outside in the public, uh, whether that would protect against, uh, uh, against the sun's damaging rays. And the answer is that this has not been formally tested, uh, but uh, the uh, expectation is that a face mask, uh, although it would protect you in the area in which your skin is covered, uh, remember that there's still a considerable amount around the eyes uh, and the ears, as well as the forehead, that would need to be uh, protected and would require additional protection, either in the form of sunscreen or a broad-brimmed hat. Uh, well, you know, this has been really an amazing program, just phenomenal. I actually want to thank our speakers. You have been amazing and um, and just provided so much information to our participants today in such a collegial fashion and in such a really patient-centered way as well, giving people information that they can really use. Um, and I know there are many more questions in queue, and we probably could go on for a good part of the afternoon, but we did say this would be a one-hour program. So I also want to thank all of you who asked such really great questions online. Those questions, as our speakers have already said, really enhance our program and give us a sense of the things that are of concern to you as well. I um, Also, in wrapping this up, I just would like to say a few words to you all about what, where do you go from here? So for those of you who have the opportunity to ask a question, we, we will still ask you to go back to your treating healthcare team and ask that question of them as well. Because remember, they know everything about you. And it's very important to do that. And for those of you who actually were listening and maybe didn't get to ask your question, again, now you have the freedom to go and ask your healthcare team your question. I think all of our speakers have, have really recommended that you, if you see something, say something. If you feel something, say something. Go to your healthcare team and bring it to them. That's really important. We also recognize that all of you do like to get information from, um, from the website, from and we want you to be sure to go to credible websites. Credible means that they're probably from NCI, Designated Centers of Excellence. So major cancer centers like the centers our, our speakers, all of our speakers on all of our programs are from. And also that the information is up to date. So it probably should be within about a couple of weeks of, of the information that's up there. It should be pretty, pretty current information. It's very important. So one one site we recommend heavily is, of course, the National Cancer Institute. They have a wonderful both a 800 number and they also have a wonderful website. It's www.cancer.gov. And they also do have a live chat feature, which really allows all of you to post your questions um, on, you know, on on the website, which is really important. I mean, that's really uh, kind of you post your question, they'll give you, they'll go through all their databases and give you the information you need. That's really important. And there are many others. So we will, when you get your evaluation, we will include all of the sites that we would recommend that you go to for information. We're also partnering with a number of skin cancer organizations, and they also have a very credible and very carefully researched information. Um, so that's really important as well. Um, in addition to that, for those of you who wish to pursue further services from cancer care, whether it be for the practical and financial assistance or for the counseling services or the chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers, really you may have a question or concern that you may have, you may simply call us or you may, of course, visit 
um, our website. For those of you internationally or those of you who prefer to go to our website, you can post your question or concern there. And for our international participants who need financial assistance or help, our staff are very good at linking you up to resources in countries that you may not be aware of where you are um, that offer services to you. It's our, our role is to really connect you if we don't have a service ourselves. So I want to thank you all for being on the call today. Also, as we conclude, I really don't want anyone to feel alone in coping with metastatic melanoma or any type of cancer. Now, I do know it's normal to feel alone sometimes, and particularly in this world of social distancing right now, people do feel alone. It's a normal feeling to have. But I wish you would all tuck away the thought that you do have access to a lot of people when you're feeling alone that can help you, um, that your, your, your health care team is a phone call away or, um, or visiting. The different institutions have different ways, but a phone is always usable to get to your health care team and important. Um, also, um, we also want you to know that there are lots of organizations out there that are incredibly helpful to you and can be by your simply calling them. And sometimes you really don't know why you're calling them, what they can do for you, but they will tell you what they can do for you, and you can then decide if those are services you wish to take advantage of. So, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day. <laughs>